You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Reborn every 600 years in man's reckoning of time, the gargoyles joined battle against man to gain dominion over the earth. In each coming, the gargoyles were nearly destroyed by men who flourished in greater numbers. Now it has been so many hundreds of years that it seems the ancient statues and paintings of gargoyles are just products of man's imagination. In this year, with man's thoughts turned toward the many ills he has brought upon himself, man has forgotten his most ancient adversary, the gargoyles. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. That opening was a tiny excerpt from the 1972 made-for-TV film Gargoyles. It's not a great movie, though lots of people have had fun watching it. I suppose it's mostly notable for its special effects work by a young artist named Stan Winston. At the time I'm recording this, you can check that film out on YouTube, and I put a link to it in our show notes at monstertalk.org. This week, we're taking a look at Gargoyles. Now, this is tricky, since primarily Gargoyles are, strictly speaking, a physical work of architecture. We'll talk about that during the interview. I've wanted to cover this fabulous monster, but I didn't know quite how to tackle it, what angle to take. It's shown up in films like Disney's animated adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the aforementioned Gargoyles, and the regrettable 2014 film I, Frankenstein, which currently sports an overly generous 4% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. One of my hesitancies in covering this monster, despite its widespread public recognition was the lack of consistency in the folklore and history. There's stories which say the creatures were named after the sound of the gargles of the water that passed through its mouth. There's stories saying it was named after a monstrous dragon-like creature. And there's a mishmash of legends about whether gargoyles are supposed to be figures of good or figures of evil. But despite the inconsistencies in the lore, one thing I think we can agree on is that gargoyles are art. They're a feature of Gothic architecture hundreds of years old, and they served both a serious structural purpose and a glorious artistic one. 
Thanks to our Facebook keeper, James Nealon, for recommending our guest this week. It's time to crank up our Cradle of Filth albums and get our gothic on with some gargoyle monster dog. So Matthew Duman is a photographer and graphic designer who grew up in Bethany, Connecticut. He attended the gargoyle-free campus of Central Connecticut State University, but while studying abroad, developed a fascination with the grotesque sculptures of the cathedrals of Britain. In addition to England, Matt has made photographic trips to Italy, Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. Matt currently works in New Haven, Connecticut. He began exploring the variety of sculptures found on the buildings of Yale University and as a personal and as a personal project has researched and documented these new world grotesques, which are closer but no less bewitching than their European counterparts. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. So just to begin with, what is a gargoyle? I mean, I think most of us have seen them, but if you can tell us a little bit about them, I think a lot of people think that they might have a, a, a spiritual or a superstitious purpose, or is it practical? You can tell us a little bit about gargoyles. Well, it's a little of both. Um, actually, these days in modern times, the definitions have gotten a little muddled. There is gargoyles and there are grotesques. Now, grotesque is the general the arch- general architectural term for any kind of sculpture uh, on or in a building. And it's usually a person, animal, or, or fanciful creature. Now, a gargoyle is a specific type of grotesque. Um, specifically, it's the ones that channel water. So basically, and that's where the that's where the word comes from. It comes from the old um, French word gagui, which is spelled G-A-R-G-U-I-L-L-E, which refers to the throat. Now, that's related to the modern word to gargle, because it refers to water uh-huh. going down your throat, which is what gargoyles, that, which is what gargoyles function as. So basically, a gargoyle is a specific type of grotesque, and it's a basically a decorative rain yeah, spout. A very decorative. Can you tell us a little bit about the styles uh, and the forms of these these? So let me just say before I before we get into that, I've been wanting to talk about gargoyles because uh, culturally, you know, they fit in as a monster in modern times in all these sort of fictional narratives like the gargoyles uh, cartoon. Uh, they were in um, there was a Frankenstein movie yep. that came out that was kind of horrible that had. Uh, Gargoyles is one of the kind of creatures as sort of protections. And then uh, there was a Stan Winston movie back in the early 70s for TV. But historically, they, it, there's not like a huge amount of lore that I could find about gargoyles coming to life or where do they arise from or anything like that. But uh, uh, did you, when you were looking in the research, did you find anything about the people believing that they came to life or were real or in any way represent anything except artistic sort of representations of monsters? Um, I haven't found anything with people actually believing they were real or, or came to life. They're really more symbolic. Yeah. So maybe we could talk about that. In the, the They come in a lot of different styles. And in your book, by the way, your book has just a ton yes. of beautiful photography for people who can't make it to Yale to look themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've captured really great photographs of all these different gargoyles and grotesques um, throughout the... Yeah, it'd be a great it really um, would. coffee it makes table. It want to go out and buy a coffee table. Yes. 
just to put it on. Oh, I've got, I got coffee. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's coffee as well, yes. Oh, sorry. So the question was, uh, so can you talk about some of the styles and forms that these gargoyles come in? Yeah. Well, there's the basic what, basic style that everybody's uh, familiar with, which the name conjures up the like the demonic, um, frightening imagery, and that's that's a hangover from the medieval times where gargoyles were used on like churches and cathedrals, and they were it was they were there for a few different reasons. One of them was um, like the gar the gargoyles and grotesques were on the outside, but the but the religious imagery was kept on the inside. So it was basically saying that um, evil was kept outside of the church. And also, also, to, also some people said it was to, to scare away evil spirits so they don't come into the church. Um, also, they were used in maybe a little more practical sense. You have, as I said, they had um, religious imagery and then they had the ugly gargoyles. Well, the gargoyles were, were used to, um, to accentuate, enhance the beauty of the religious imagery by, by comparison. So I, I have kind of a follow-up, if you don't mind. The, uh, I, when I, I, I've read a lot of yeah. uh, the ghost stories of M.R. James, and a, a lot of his work talks about, yeah. um, it's fictional, but it talks about the sort of um, art that, is inside churches in England and like the art that sits on the end of uh, church pews and the art that's like sort of tucked away in various places. Did, did you get a sense of why there is so much grotesque art within the church? I mean, it's uh, it seems to be quite a counterpoint to the sort of uh, beauty and majesty of sort of heavenly uh, ideas that the church talks about in some ways. Well, that brings me to my um, to my next style. That I was going to say the the more allegorical grotesque. Now, back in mid back in the Middle Ages, most of the common person of the, the peasants um, they were pretty much illiterate, so the church had to um, depend on visual imagery to make its to get its point across. So, grotesques and gargoyles were used. To um, to show concepts of morality and religion, because basically um, they couldn't depend on the peasants, all the peasants being able to read those concepts in in books like the Bible. Which I think is kind of funny that Yale adopted that sort of thing, because I think most most <laughs> Yale students are pretty literate. We're. Uh... All of the gargoyles, creatures, or monsters of some kind, or were any fashioned after people or famous people in particular? Um, there's a whole variety of gargoyles. The demonic imagery is just one one category. There were, as I said, they they could demonstrate morality with different figures, or um, they could be maybe a statement about the um, the city. The, that the um, cathedral was located in, or in modern times, which we're talking about, um, like Yale University, uh, the school itself. Um, they would be at Yale. There's a lot of um, depictions of Yale's mascot, Handsome Dan the Bulldog. And then 
there's also a lot of depictions of depictions of um, historical events in Yale's home city of New Haven, Connecticut. So, why are there so many gargoyles at Yale? Well, Yale is one of the schools that revived the Gothic architecture style, and this new this revival of, of Gothic architecture on college campuses is called collegiate Gothic. Now, this was revived um, during in the 19th century, and it was, and it had it, its roots in try in to raise the um, the school's stature in society, and ultimately to get more money in endowments. Basically, they would make they would build buildings that associated their or their institution with the medieval universities of Europe, like Oxford or Cambridge. And then they would make them look old to enhance their, their dignity and venerability and to make them look timeless. So basically they looked, they looked old. People couldn't really say how old, but they looked like they'd been there a long time and they looked like they will stand for a long time. And that carried over to their attitudes toward the school itself. The school has has been there, and it will be there. And its and its ideals have had been there and will be there a long time. So, how did you get interested in gargoyles, and how did you come to write a book about gargoyles? <laughs> well, it it's one of those things. It's like a hobby that just snowballed. Um, I grew up Bethany, where I grew up, is a little town right north of New Haven. So I was always going into New Haven. I always knew Yale had some great buildings. I never thought too much about them, but I always assumed they were hundreds of years old. And when I started working in New Haven, I was looking for a personal project to get into. So I knew Yale had some nice buildings. So I started photographing around Yale. And I knew, I always heard Yale had sculptures on their buildings, but I, I assumed that it that they were very stuffy and historical, and that's that's nice. But honestly, I wouldn't I wouldn't write a book about just that. Um, it was when I I started seeing grotesque and gargoyles that were very very funny and just plain bizarre. That really that it's it's that humor factor that really drew me in, and I started taking pictures and. My hard drive started filling up, and at the time, at the time, I was doing some freelance work for a um, for a Yale professor, and we got to be good friends. And I would always complain to him that I have all these images, I don't know what to do. And so he said, "Well, why don't you do a book?" And now he probably said it just to shut me up because I was complaining about it. But <laughs> but um, and I said, "Well, I can design it, and I can I have the photos. I, I guess I can do it." And it was a good. At the time, it seemed like a good challenge. I never, I never had done anything like that before, so I just started putting together a book, and it was, it, it was a challenge, but um, it was a lot of. It's been a lot of fun too. Yeah, <laughs> and, such a great it's a really idea. Cool book too. I love the fact and, that you went black and white because it sort of adds to the gothic feel. Well, that's that's another point I wanted to make when I first. When I first started taking pictures, I, I took them in color, and I still take them in color or, or originally. But when I was, but they didn't really have the the punch, the the effectiveness. It's only when I started playing around with them. One time I put them in black and white, 
and I realized you could it brought out the character of the grotesques a lot more. And I realized that since most of these grotesques and gargoyles are not painted, their features are are dependent on you know the light and dark areas, and the only colors that really sh would show up in the photo are maybe the sky or leaves of trees, things that are not the grotesques. So basically the color was only a distraction. So I, so I would convert them to black and white and the true character of the grotesques really pops and shines Neat. through. I think, it, I think it's very effective. Um, yeah. So, Beautiful. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how these are made? I mean, um, are they sculpted or are they poured into molds? How are these actually crafted? Well, many, most of the, the grotesques at Yale, I would say, are 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 cast from from molds. But Yale does have examples of many different kinds of methods that, that they were made on. Um, they also have ones that were sculpted from a, a solid piece of, of stone. And you can tell those by, you can actually see like the veins running through the stone. So you could, so, so you could tell that was one solid piece that they sculpted from. There's also others that were carved into, into wood and then others that were cast, um, cast bronze or, or some other metal. So, so there's a, there's a variety of um, of methods that 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 you can use to, to actually make a gargoyle, but most of them at Yale are, I, I think, are cast cast um, concrete. And were gargoyles usually designed along with a building, or were they something that were added after the fact? Um, at Yale, I would say in most cases they were designed with the building, and depending on the, the building itself, the importance of the building. Sometimes they even had like the the main library called Sterling Memorial Library at Yale. That's actually, it's built to look like a Gothic cathedral. It even has a confessional. It's actually a phone booth, but it looks like a confessional. Um, for those, they actually had a committee with the architect and um, and dignitaries from, the, from Yale and some of the masons and comprised of uh, many people involved in the construction that they would choose iconography to put on the building. And now other, other buildings maybe that were a little less important, um, maybe it was up to the, the Masons themselves or, or just the, the architect. Um, but but uh, at Yale on the whole, they, they were put up when the building was put up. I've been to other schools where that wasn't the case. They would actually leave blocks on the buildings. And then later, maybe 50, 60 years later, they would come and carve something. So while you were putting the book together, did you ever happen to visit during a rainstorm so you could actually hear the gargoyles at work? Um, I never really visited during the rain. I did visit many times during the winter where you could see the, um, where gargoyles, you could tell gargoyles from regular grotesque because they have these, these long icicle goatees hanging out of their mouths. <laughs> and um, and I, those, those made for some good pictures as well. But, I was um, curious as to what they sounded like when the water was coming it, out of them. Well, I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if they made a, a, 
Well, yeah, they, they I, like, probably like think a, a, a gargoyle sound right? like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was... Yeah, yeah. Very German. I, I mean, everybody sees them all the time, but I, I rarely ever see them actually spouting water in any of the photographs or you know things I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Because see, I tried to. Well, the reason why I was down in the winter time a lot of times was, well, the there's a lot of tree. Even though Yale's in the city, there's a lot of trees around the campus, and I found out the hard way. I started photographing in the summertime. By the end of the summer, I figured I got most of the, I think I got pretty much everything that's that's around Yale. And then the leaves came off the trees, revealing a whole lot more that I never saw before. So then I realized I was pretty naive to make a statement like that. So so I, now I never say that I've seen everything because it's, it seems like there's always something more to see. And whenever I try, I try to, fo- I go to photograph something I always try to go maybe in the winter or early spring before the leaves come on the trees. So, because a lot of them can be covered well, by the leaves. Speaking of naive, you remind me of uh, Karen had talked about um, eavesdroppers, which I guess is not really directly naive, but naive droppers are funny portmanteau. Anyway, <laughs> do you know anything about eavesdroppers? <laughs> These sort of carved wood figures built into the eaves in the English architecture? Yeah, I've. I've I've read about them. That was, uh, I think, Henry VIII did, um, put those, installed those when he was, I think it was at Hampton Court. He, he was renovating Hampton Court for, for his purposes. And, and yeah, they were usually put high up, high up near the ceiling. And those are an actual form of gargoyle. And I, and I think, I mean, a, a form of grotesque, I should say. And um, I think they were there, as the name suggests, as eavesdroppers it was to to remind the anyone either the, the court or the staff of the uh, of the palace that well the king is always there and he's always listening so don't don't say anything um, negative about the king because it'll always get back to him and I always, I always think that those are a those are a form of, of grotesque now they're a little different from your normal grotesque because well, first of all, they're um, they're mostly they're painted, and most of the at least the ones I've seen, the details are painted on them, the eyes, the um, the eyebrows, things like that. And I think the painting is intentional because the people on on the ground level can see them a lot better; they stand out a lot better. Yeah. Um, so they are a form of gar- of grotesque, but the but they're not. Most grotesques are are not painted, though. Yeah, I watched a good documentary on eavesdroppers uh, in Hampton Court a few years ago, uh, and so I just wondered if there was a relation between the two of them. Uh, and yes. I guess it leads me to ask as well: Can you ever get gargoyles that are, even though they're designed as water spouts, uh, can you ever get indoor ones for any reason? Um. I guess if you were, you were somehow um, channeling water indoors or, or through inside, maybe up near the roof. I, I've never really seen them indoors. But maybe most decorative the, ones that people buy for their houses or something. Modern ones. There, there are many 
grotesques that I've seen indoors, but not really ones, not really gargoyles yeah. that channel water. Uh, I, I've seen that. I haven't seen too many so of those indoors. If I remember correctly, these appeared in something like the the 600s originally. Something is that about right? Um, like the first time we saw gargoyles being used. I, I it seems like they're uh, they've kind of like come and gone in popularity. Uh, and I was curious as to uh, why they were originally developed. If, I don't know if you actually looked into that at all. I was wondering what drove them. I mean, they're, they're artistic, but they're also functional. And I just don't know why they seem to have stuck around for so long. They've, I mean, they've been around for such a long time to not have any particular, you know, monster lore around them. I, I'm not really sure what the deal is there. It's, it's sort of a really sticky meme almost. Well, as as you said, in the old days, in the in medieval times, gargoyles actually had a physical, uh, had a practical purpose to to um to remove water from the building to, and they were, they didn't just dump it off the side. They were kind of like spouted it away from the uh, for, from the building, and that was so so the water wouldn't just pour down the side of the building and and start to erode it. Now later on in probably maybe the 15, 1600s, um, they developed downspouts. And so they could remove water just down the side in, in a pipe. So the use of gargoyles kind of, kind of faded out a bit. But then um, the style was revived in maybe the early 1800s, because, but more as a kind of a decorative affectation. Do they exist in other cultures at all? Do they just go back to to uh, the Middle Ages, or they they go back further than that in other countries or cultures? Well, they I've seen them on like um, ancient Greek temples, and they don't really they're they're a little different from the gargoyles that you and, and grotesque that you uh, that you imagine. When people think of grotesque and gargoyles, they think of something medieval. But I've right. but I've seen de- decorative elements on ancient temples from ancient Greek, ancient Greece around or so that time as well. So was it was it draining to do all this work, taking all these photos? Well, I have to say, I mean, it did it did get did get tough. But I, Blake, I have to say, I just kind of went with the flow. Nice. <laughs> Oh, wow. Here I was thinking he was going to end the conversation at this point. (laughs) And scene. (laughs) To be serious, the hardest part of doing all this was I had so many pictures, and I'm not a very organized person, and the hardest part was just organizing all these photos and editing editing them all and, and choosing which ones to use. And as I like to say, Yale is more grotesque than you can shake a student loan application at. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I I had to develop little um, organization techniques so I knew which building um, these photos came from and which part of the building, which ones were close to each other. Yeah. So so these actually, so James Neeland, who does our uh, Facebook uh, administration. He handles our Facebook group and does a great job with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he helps keep the friendly tone of the group and uh, gets rid of spam. 
Yeah, I know he's oh, awesome, yeah. and but he recommended the book to us, and uh, it, so I guess he's he's also from Connecticut. Uh, do you know James, or how did you guys meet? Or? No, he. I was doing a um, a lecture. I do lectures at libraries, and I had one scheduled for Cromwell, which is the town where James lives, James lives in, and okay. and he right about a week before the lecture, he bought a book, and I after he. When, when somebody buys a book, I fill the order, send it out, and then I send them an email thanking them and send them the um, send them the tracking number. So I did that, and then he replied saying that he was you know the administrator of this podcast, and and that's how I got how I got involved in all this. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it really is. I think something that our listeners will really enjoy. Okay. It's uh, it's just mm-hmm. full of monsters. It's got. I mean, there's so many interesting and. I mean, when they say the word grotesque, I think that's very accurate. Well, uh, I mean, I, so- just in general, I like that word because it's a very, mm. it's it's very, it gets a very visceral visceral reaction. Yeah, and uh, I was just really surprised to hear you say that some gargoyles are humorous because I always thought they were grotesque that they were supposed to inspire fear on some level. And, and so, uh, so- are, but we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. But especially these days, um, there's a whole variety of different kinds. And as I said, it's the I, I enjoy the the humorous and the bizarre ones the most. And that's what really drew me into this project. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the, the humorous ones or the, the bizarre ones or the scary ones that you've come across researching this project? Well, there's one... Um, it's not actually on a building. It's a, it's on the base of a of a flagpole at Yale, and it's it's called Ledger Flagstaff because it's a memorial to a to a student a former student called Augustus Canfield Ledger, and it's um, cast bronze and it was put up by his by his his friends. Now Augustus Canfield Ledger he he graduated from Yale in eighteen ninety eight. And then in 1899, he was killed in the Spanish-American War. And then about 10 years later, well, 1908, 
his his friends, his Yale friends, put this memorial to him, and it has this really, uh, really, well grotesque face on it. <laughs> and I was wondering after I read the story, I kept wondering like, why would his classmates put such an ugly face at the base of their memorial to him? And then I was thinking about it a while, and then I'm like, well, you know, Ledger died tragically and, and much too early. So I think I think there was a lot of intent behind it because, you know, even on this campus of learning and architectural beauty, this ugly face serves as a shocking reminder of our own mortality and basically not to take life for granted. I'm looking at the picture because it's like on page 91 of your book. Is that uh-huh. is that maybe Pan? I'm not really sure what that represents exactly. I think a lot of people said it's it's Bacchus. Oh, could be, could be. Because he has all these, all these like fruits around him. Ah, and, yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was looking at it, and it looks well, it looks pretty grotesque, and it's over a hundred years old. And I was thinking, well, you take off all that tarnish, and it's still pretty darn ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if, even if, even when it was new, it was probably ugly. We've talked about the popularity of gargoyles over the ages have risen and fallen, but uh, it seems that. A lot of the really old-looking parts, this sort of artistic throwback, uh, are not actually that old. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how the gargoyles have come and gone over the history of the college? Well, I'll start this off with a, um, a little anecdote. A few years ago, I was watching a, a documentary of, of Windsor Castle in England. And it was they were, in, they were interviewing some of the staff. Now, Windsor Castle... It's near Heathrow Airport, so almost all the time there's always passenger jets coming and going above the castle. And they were interviewing this guide, and he said one time he was he was showing around he was taking around a group of Americans. He made sure to, to state they were Americans, and one of the Americans was asking him. He said, "Why why would they build the castle so close to the airport?" <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an American. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So, and I didn't do that in my American accent, but <laughs> but yeah. Um, as long but, as you're wearing a baseball cap, that's okay. <laughs> uh, turn around behind. Turn around behind. <laughs> so basically, and that's just to show that the Amer- Americans have a much different perspective on uh, on, on the age of things than than Europeans. Or, or here, here we, we see something that's you know 200 years old and we think wow that that's pretty old well over there they have buildings from the middle ages they have roman ruins which which are uh, a whole hell of a lot older than than 200 years as i said before uh, uh one of the basic goals of collegiate gothic architecture was to associate the the institutions in america with the um, the older institutions in Europe, like Oxford and Cambridge, and because they wanted to seem timeless and venerable, and I always, I it always made me laugh because I was thinking, you look at these buildings, like wow, that they're, they're pretty old, but then if you really take it literally, like do I really think that you know a group of a group of masons came over here in in the Middle Ages and <laughs> and built these buildings in like Chicago and and all in New Haven and and all all these different places around the country. Of course not, you know. That's the 
<laughs> but um, but but still, they they go through great lengths to make you think they're a lot old. They're a lot older than they actually are. It, now it's kind of effective, though. And it, it's interesting because I think you can kind of pull it off with uh, with gargoyles and this sort of uh, sculptural uh, elements. But if you were to put, say, a stone pyramid up, nobody's going to buy that. It's not going to seem ancient, yeah. right? You know, except for Vegas. Yeah. Well, yeah, but does it <laughs> seem well, all? <laughs> but I, I, I would have to say that uh, two hundred years is old to an Australian. Anything in anything that's a hundred years old is is Ooh, old in Australia. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now there are also building. Now they, those a lot of buildings that were built. At, that were supposed to, that were the, the the style the collegiate gothic style at its zenith, probably about the late twenties early thirties, uh, were built around that time. At Yale, though, you go in there and you see these buildings that were that are about you know eighty ninety years old. The, then between them, there's this little pavilion that's that's a big stone structure looks just like the other ones. And it looks very old, but then if you look closely, you'll notice that on the um, on the cornerstone it says 2007. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. See, it's 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 that kind of like little trickery that makes me that makes me view Yale less as a community and more as like a theme park. Do they are they still adding to the collection of gargoyles at Yale? Is it uh, just something they've they finished with that um, that aspect of architecture, or do, do they ever get damaged? Do they replace them with new works? Is there, there any changes, or are they mostly fixed? Up until a few years ago, I would have said, "Well, no, this this the collegiate Gothic style kind of petered out at the end of the 1930s, and then modernism took over, and and now there's all all modern buildings and all different styles." But um, just last fall, Yale finished two new residential colleges, both in the collegiate Gothic style, with gr grotesques and gargoyles. Now, the interesting thing about these is these were made in the past few years. So, again, they look pretty old, but some of them are very modern in their, their concept and themes. Like, there's actually one of an iPhone. <laughs> really? <laughs> cool. And that's what I that's what I like as well, the kind of anachronistic feel of it as well. Mm -hmm. oh, that's fun. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how that would work for having a spout. Uh <laughs> well, that phone was an actual that was a grotesque. They have gargoyles of handsome Dan the Bulldog with, with water coming out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> speaking of which, so you've got these they sort of uh like uh it's a couple of hundred years of, of history there. Do, do they have a, uh, like, is it possible to ID the sculptors who crafted these? Um, I really, I really went in and researched and researched and, and I couldn't find too many names of the actual sculptors themselves. I did come up with a few names of people who directed the, the, um, the 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 pr production of the sculptures. There was Rene Chambellan, who was a who was an architectural sculptor. He did work in New York and Chicago as well. Now it said he was in charge of the sculpt the sculpture 
for um, Sterling Memorial Library. Now, that doesn't mean he did all of the sculpture. I envision him working with a, with a group of sculptors and masons, and he would and he would be directing them as to what to what his vision was. Um, but I, it's there's really, as far as I found, there's very few records of of individual masons and and sculptors who worked on the buildings. Did you find any sense of a, a sort of Dan Brown level hidden mystery or meaning in any of the symbology? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are. There's another type of grotesque that I like to call reclusive grotesques. And they're basically grotesques that are kind of hidden. Now, you'd think that, you know, they spend money putting these and they spend a lot of work um, producing the sculpture and putting it on the building. You think they want people to see it. Well, and then some of them are hidden. Like there's one on the, um, the Hall of Graduate Studies. They have these... At the front entrance, they have these arches, and between the arches, they have these um, em- these niches, little alcoves um, that ha- that have a little decorated canopy on on top, and those are empty. And but if you're really particularly curious, you can look up. You can you can kind of go really close and look up under the canopy, and see this little face sticking his tongue out at you. And I like that because I because you know that wasn't for everybody to see, right? And I like the, there's also in the library, um, just um, a corner with decor- decorative work on it. But if you look up under, underneath, um, there's a, a spider, but it would, but it's way up underneath, so it's not in for general view. And as again, as I I was wondering why they would. Why, why would people go through the trouble to sculpt something which many people, you know, don't even see? And then I realized, then I realized, well, what am I doing? If I think when people actually look closely and see these, it inspires them to look closer at all the stonework and enhances the overall experience for them. I mean, something which I can, can personally attest. Yeah, they're like Easter eggs, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that uh, at Disneyland that they have those hidden Mickey's. They're supposed to be. Yep, that's what Mickey Mouse is. That's what I say. Much like the um, hidden Mickey's on the Disney theme parks. There you go. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the Disney theme parks, like the Imagineering and things that go into the behind the scenes. Oh yeah, and I've seen a lot Mm of um, relation between that, the building of the Disney theme parks, and the designing and building of a college campus. Interesting. It's very intricate. Yes, yeah. there, there's a lot of there's a lot of thought that goes into it. So, uh, you know, this topic's a little different from a lot of the monsters we've covered on the show in that I again, like we talked about, I, I don't feel like there was a huge uh, I don't think there's a, a lore around the existence of of gargoyles as real monsters, but but as an artistic feature, you know they're all over the place and they're they're gorgeous and interesting. And I, I highly recommend the book. So if people want to get the book, uh, do you want to send them to Amazon or is it better to have them come to your webpage? Or how? What's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of this fascinating? Well, it's available on Amazon, but it's also available on my website as well. It's you probably get a little cheaper on uh, on my website which is www.yalegargoyles.com. Nice. Okay. 
Very cool. So um, forgive me if we've already discussed this, but um, just how many gargoyles are there at Yale? Uh, I get this question so many times, and <laughs> and I can only estimate um, many hundreds is all wow. I can is the most specific I can be, because I'm still That's finding cool. I'm still finding new ones, and yeah, I I've gotten to the habit of every time I go down there looking around every little corner and nook and cranny, and sometimes you don't find anything. Other times. You um, you find all sorts of things that you never knew were there. That's what that's what really um, drew me in at the beginning because, as I said, I was familiar with the university from when I was uh, a small child. It's just, I, but now when I dis when I started discovering all these creatures on the buildings, it gave me a whole new perspective. I would go down streets that I've been down many times in my life, but now I was seeing all these things that I never never seen before. So it gave me a new perspective on a, on a familiar place. Sounds like the potential for a sequel or maybe to <laughs> even uh, just photograph the, the gargoyles in different seasons. I think a book on each season would be beautiful. Uh, well, I, that book came out, the, the Education in the Grotesque came out a few years ago. And since then, as I said, Yale opened up two new residential colleges. So I was there at the gates um, on move-in day um, when they when they opened it to students, and so I photographed them. Plus, I've been to nine other university campuses, like Duke and uh, Princeton, and University of Chicago, and City College of New York, and that's what I'm putting together for. That's what the book I'm working on now. It's called the Grotesque Ten. Oh, great. <laughs> We'll have to have yeah. We'll have to have you back on to, to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So, when you were cataloging these, what was the uh, scariest imagery that you saw? Well, there's one at at Trumbull College. Now it was it. Everybody likes it because it fits everybody's vision of a true grotesque or. It's not really a gargoyle, but that's what people think. That's what people call it. It's it's this lizard-like demon with this with um, a ridge of spines on his back. And the reason why it's kind of scary was, at first, it, it was kind of far away, and I had to stand on a, a bench with a, with a big big telephoto lens to see it. And I noticed it was holding a crown, and then. I look closer and I see something streaming out of the crown. I'm like, is that hair? Is there a is there a head in that crown? I I couldn't see an actual head. And the only, and the thing is, since it's far away and and over the over the rooftops, I couldn't really see it from from many other angles. So I I really don't know if there's an actual head in that crown, but it looks like there is. Creepy. <laughs> I mean, there you've got so many images in the book, and and so many of them are uh, just, I, I guess it's a combination of grotesque and gorgeous. It's really, really neat. Well, I, I tried to. Um, I liked when they were close, so I could really experiment with wide-angle lenses and and getting getting ang you know, um, um different angles on something maybe from below or or just 
I don't know. I, I like just, just seeing what I could do. And because I, I lived close to campus, I could always take a few pictures, um, go back home and look at them. And if they weren't right, come back and, and, and take them again and try something different. So does Yale offer any gargoyle tours or is it something that you've ever thought about offering? Um, actually, I do offer that. <laughs> I do. Um, I do gargoyle tours. I call them grotesque safaris to see gargoyles in their natural habitat. And I actually wear, somebody gave me a photographer's vest years ago. I've never actually worn it to go photographing. It was just in my closet. And then I realized, well, I can wear that. I can get some cargo pants. And then I bought a pith helmet online. <laughs> <laughs> so I go around, I, I, meet, I meet people down at old campus part of Yale and I take them around and fantastic <laughs> now it's it's fun to wear that whole get up but then I kind of realized there's a practical purpose as well because this is in the middle of a city and a lot of times there's a lot of students or just people milling around so you have when you're on the tour you have to know who to follow the person the guide has to has to stand out in the crowd and that mm -hmm. helps me stand out and people so people I'm don't sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> your, Did your, you have any your vestments? Oh. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have a little um, a sign that I made on the back of the of the vest that says the gargoyle guide. Nice. <laughs> so really... you get people coming up and asking you about the the tours. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I think after or... a tour, I was walking across the old campus and and one of the the groundskeepers was like, hey, the gargoyle guy. And he's all yelling. <laughs> You're famous. <laughs> yeah, apparently. That's so cool. I, it really is the, gorgeous uh, imagery. Yeah, it really is. And oh, I, it is. It's just incredible. It's beautiful. And I've always loved gargoyles, been fascinated by them. So it's this is great that we're finally getting around to, to talking about gargoyles. But I have to say, I mean, it really is an effective uh, means of making things look old. I mean... The whole idea of gargoyles, and we, we have this sort of cultural attachment to it as being a sort of medieval architectural feature. And just by slapping mm -hmm. it on to buildings within the past couple of hundred years, it really does make them seem ancient. Well, I mean, the Gothic style has a lot of features like, you know, spires and um, wrought iron gates and all that is to, to, to make it make it look old. Cloves, but, cigarettes. and Well, uh, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but the gargoyles um, have a little bit of an advantage because not only do they make it look old, they can actually convey a message. So basically, they can, as I like to say, the, the buildings can, can wear their identity on their sleeves. Like they could actually send um, literal messages in, instead of just in, implying a vague um, a vague notion of old of age, yeah. Mm -hmm. So well, that, I still think a couple hundred years is old. Well, it well it is. Now on yeah. <laughs> on this topic, um, there's one architect who went to Yale and he designed a lot of the buildings, the Gothic, the celebrated Gothic buildings at Yale, the library and the law school. His name is James Gamble Rogers. Now there's a lot of stories about him. Um, there's one that. When he fit, when he was building one building, he a lot of these buildings have um, like slate roofs. 
Well, he saw the slates before he put them up, and he didn't like them because they were too new-looking. They were right out of the factory. So the story goes that he had them buried in Long Island Sound for about eight months. And then after he dug them up again, they were nicely old-aged and, and pitted and discolored. So then they looked, they looked, you know, a couple hundred years old. Then he had them put up. Um, there's another story about him. Uh, there's what there's a bell tower in the center of campus called Harkness Tower. It was built in 1921. Um, there's a story that, and he designed that as well, and has, has it has a lot of sculpture on it and all. When he and it, the story goes, and I'm not, I can't say I completely. Believe, these are just stories that get embellished over the years, and I. I can't say I totally believe this, but it's a good story. When they finished the um, the tower, it, it was the tallest freestanding stone structure in North America in 1921. Well, but he wasn't satisfied with it because it looked too new. Well, obviously, it just they just finished construction. So the story goes that he had acid poured down the sides to, to age the building. And the thing was that not only did it age the building, it weakened the structure enough that they had to put steel supports on the inside to hold it up. So it was no longer the tallest freestanding stone structure. Now, the reason why I have my doubts that story, because that would take a lot of acid. The, the tower is um, over 200 feet tall, and it would take a lot of acid to cover that whole building. And the stories have him sneaking up to the top of the tower at night and pouring a flask of acid down the side. Now... <laughs> but as I say, it's I'm not sure if it's actually true, but it's a good story nonetheless. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of acid at Yale anyway. Well, <laughs> kind of acid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that reminds me of uh, just a lot of the tourist scams overseas when people think that they're buying antiques and they're really just modern sculptures and, and various yeah, mm-hmm. objects that have been aged or made to look old. Yeah, there's a rich history in aging artifacts, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, soaking papers in tea and various other Coffee. things. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, there are quite a few of kind of aging techniques like that 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 James Gamble Rogers and other architects used. Um, one is when they sometimes you'll notice some of the stairs have a little kind of depression in the middle of the tread. Um, and a lot of times, sometimes they were actually molded that way. It's supposed to look like it's been worn down well, that, after over hundreds and hundreds of years. Straight up cheating is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> there's, also, there's also things like um, you'll see a, a row of windows, and then one, wind, one window of that set is all blocked up. But if you look closely, you'll notice that the, um, the blocks that block up the window are the same blocks that, that it's used in the surrounding wall. And not only that, they're aged the same, they're worn the same amount, which means they were put there at construction. So it was built with that one window blocked up. Cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> and then I mentioned before the, the those niches, the empty niche, that's another device they used. They're at the front of the Sterling Memorial Library, I counted there are 22 of those niches. Only one has sculpture in it. The others are empty. Now it looks like the perfect place for a tall statue. It has a it's a little alcove, and it has a has a flat uh, base uh, bottom. Well, you're supposed to assume that when the the building was originally constructed, quote unquote, uh, hundreds of years ago, you're supposed to assume that they all had sculpture in them. But over the lo- of the building's long and colorful history, 
those sculptures were either stolen or destroyed or or in one, one removed in in one way or another. So that that's another way to make you just make you assume that the building is older than it actually is. That's pretty so clever. Pretty, no, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a, a, a grotesque pun for you. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh, you've got my attention. <laughs> well, <laughs> at one of the side entrances to the library, there's a lamp. And right above the lamp is a, is a beetle, a, a, a beetle sculpted in the, in, 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 in the concrete. And also on either side is the beetle's larvae. Now, I don't know what the actual scientific name of this beetle and its larvae is, but I do know, do know that the, the um, common name for its larvae is the bookworm. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very clever. So what, as I said, I was drawn in by the, by the humor in these. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's not just not just that there. It's it makes it fun to look at. I think it's kind of incredible that you can connect with someone, i.e., the makers, the 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 sculptors of these. You can connect with them on a personal and emotional level over a gulf of you know, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety years. And it's more than just writing some writing some factual information on the wall. Yeah, it's actually connecting on an emotional and personal level, That's which it. I think is amazing. Uh, when when you've got to actually commit your pun into stonework, that's a that's a serious commitment. <laughs> you got to be serious, buddy. Yeah, I can see you doing that. Like, <laughs> but a lot of the attention to detail. It is. It is. That's fantastic. Well, Matt, we have a, a final question that we like to ask our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? Well, I have to go old school with this. Um, and say the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, Now, I've always loved water oh, monsters, cool. and I visited Loch Ness, and I always thought it was, in, and when I, when I was there, I always thought it was incredible that there it really isn't any solid proof of the existence of a monster, but but it's a, it's a multi-million dollar industry, the tourism. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't dra- say anything? People are drawn there. <laughs> and now... That having been said, I also have a soft spot for Frankenstein because because who could resist a monster in a sports jacket? Well, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, Matthew, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. This was fantastic. Uh, your Great, book, your book is beautiful. We'll put a it link is. to it in the show notes, and you've mentioned the URL, but you can mention it again. Um, okay, it's. Uh, www.yalegargoyles.com Great. And, uh, and we if, need a picture of him in his pith helmet for the, yeah, the show be, notes. Yeah, if you, if you could send Oh, you some. want me to say I have I have one. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, send it to us. We'll put it in the show notes. That'd <laughs> yeah. be great. And uh, thanks <laughs> again to guy. James for uh, making the recommendation. This was a really fun talk. Oh, you're making him blush now. <laughs> it's a beautiful book, and I really uh, – I uh, look forward to buying a coffee table so I can share it with my friends. So. Yeah, and some coffee. <laughs> I'll have to get to Ikea. So. <laughs> yeah, classy. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you both. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, have a good evening. And Karen, thank you for joining us as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. 
And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Matthew Duman about his book, An Education in the Grotesque, The Gargoyles of Yale University. A link to his book is in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Please stay tuned to Monster Talk for some really fun upcoming topics. We've got Megalodons, Mothman, some more magic, and even some Bigfoot coming back. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. So, so we always start by reading so, the bio, so there you go. Okay. I thought you were going to say the Bible. We always start by reading the Bible. <laughs> really? I didn't wasn't aware. It's it's surprising to everyone, including me. <laughs> <laughs>